0: Good evening, listeners. It is currently Sunday, November thirteenth, twenty sixteen, and you're tuned in to eighty-eight point seven KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after seven p.m., and on a Sunday night, that can mean only one thing: it's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Jian Kamvar. I'm DJ Lillian
1: and I'm Mackenzie Smith. Here at Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study, and here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at State. slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages.
2: Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Thomas Stokely, from the Department of Forest Ecosystems and Society in the College of Forestry. Um, Hey there, Thomas. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do for your Ph.D. research?
3: Yeah, well, thanks for having me on the radio. Um, I'm preparing for my prelims this week, so if I get off topic, it's probably because I'm getting ready to uh, start working my way through those types of questions.
0: Well, we'll be here to steer you back. Okay. (laughs) Okay.
3: Keep it real. Um, Yes, um, I'm working in a collaborative project at Oregon State University uh, with Dr. Matthew Betts and the College of Forestry. And we are essentially looking at the effects of intensive forest management on wildlife habitat and biodiversity in general. And so what I mean by intensive forest management is uh, plantation style forestry where you try to get trees to grow as rapidly as possible to produce uh, the greatest returns on investment. And so when you go through and you harvest a a plantation of trees, what pops up are these early successional shrubs and herbs, and they generally compete for resources with the Douglas fir seedlings in the northwest that we try to grow and we love for our wood products and all. Um, And so by removing that shrub component, we're actually removing valuable habitat for wildlife such as deer and elk or neotropical songbirds that migrate up here, to feed on insects and breed in these uh, harvested stands in the coast range. And so we're essentially testing this, um, testing what effects intensive forest management have on wildlife habitat and also what role wildlife play in our ecosystems and including the management of our plantations. So if you remove these early successional forage species for, say, deer and elk, because they're eating on hardwoods, uh, different herbs that pop up after you clear cut. If you're removing them by spraying herbicides, are your deer and elk going to go through and eat your tree seedlings, eat your crop seedlings more and have a detrimental impact on the, the plantation? Or if you leave some of that forage, are they actually going to be helping our plantations by foraging and uh, out, you know, really reducing the competition with those Douglas fir seedlings? And so... It kind of goes in multiple ways, looking at some of the theoretical aspects of uh, community ecology and wildlife habitat, and also some very applied aspects of what do wildlife do in the environment? What are what are, what do native plant communities do? And, and what are the functioning of these ecosystems? And so, yeah, uh, we've set up this experiment in the coast range where we have all these harvested units, sprayed a bunch of herbicides out there to remove a lot of the, the shrubs and herbs. And... We've got this gradient from a non-sprayed area to really intensively sprayed. And within those, I built wildlife exclosures. And the reason for building these exclosures was to look at the differences of vegetation inside and outside of them. So excluding deer and elk, within this gradient of herbicide treatments, do you have uh, basically greater seedling growth where deer and elk are allowed access? Uh, Or if you spray and you remove that forage, are they going to eat your tree seedlings more? And um, we have this whole suite of different uh, variables looking at songbirds and camera trap deer and elk study and uh, plant communities and plantations. So it's it's a fairly extensive project, and I could go on on about it. So
2: I have a question. You mentioned um, early successional forage species. Can you break that down a little bit? What is that exactly?
3: Yeah, so it's actually in the northwest. If you go through a typical forested area, you don't see a whole lot of biodiversity. We have fairly low uh, plant diversity. Uh, what um, kind of
0: what kind of plants do you see if you go out into the Pacific
3: Northwest forest? Like, what kind of tree do you see? You're generally going to see Douglas fir everywhere. <laughs> like, Douglas fir is planted everywhere. And um, but in the understory, we have a lot of different plants that really hang on and wait for disturbance. And all these plant communities have evolved with some level of disper- disturbance, whether it's fire or wind throw. And so what happens is these mature overstory trees fall down and these early successional plant communities, which are composed of all these different native uh, herbs and, and hardwoods, like big you know, vine maple, sprout back up and really take advantage of that resource. And they end up being actually a really diverse plant community and uh, provide a lot of habitat for, for wildlife.
0: And so if I understand your... Um if I understand your, your project correctly, it could possibly be summarized in uh, ask not what your your forest management can do for your wildlife, but what your wildlife can do for your forest management.
3: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's right. It's a good <laughs> – Kennedy, right? Or, uh, yeah. Yep. Perfect John. time for presidential quotes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah essentially, um, it's not only how our management affects – uh, these wildlife, but what these wildlife do in, in these plantations, and so um, if we lose biodiversity, if we if we see uh, we actually have a continued, uh, we're experiencing declines in black-tailed deer populations and different songbird populations like the orange crown warbler and Rufus hummingbird, and so if you remove if those species can't exist in these uh, landscapes anymore, what are the implications mm-hmm. for our management? So, like for for instance. Uh, orange crown warblers are insectivorous, and they come through. And uh, a lot of these neotropical songbirds eat equivalent to their body mass every day, and, and arthropods. Wow. And so, <laughs> that's those a arthropods, lot of bugs. Yeah, yeah, a lot of bugs. That's
1: crazy. So, so if I am in the forestry industry, if I'm if I'm a timber producer, um, what what's in it for me? What, why should I be interested in your research?
3: Yeah, excellent question. Um, some of the beginnings of this research were um, were it was meant to be applied, but we have some very theoretical aspects as well. And one of that is this idea of trophic cascades and so what cascades? Trophic cascades. When I mean trophic uh <laughs> it, it's basically Greek for uh for food. And um so so waterfalls or, are food. Yeah. <laughs> basically um if you have this top uh herbivore or top predator, um they generally exert an effect on the food chain below the earth of the, basically the uh, food level below them. So deer and elk comes through. Uh, it's going to eat a lot of hardwoods and these hardwoods are, you know, that pop up after clear cuts are, are really palatable. And so if we allow wildlife to access these plantations, then um, theoretically it could be benefiting plantations by removing that hardwood component. So we might not have to spray as much in areas we have high densities of deer and elk, uh, because if, if if you remove that forage and you still have high densities of these wildlife species, then um, those herbivores could be ripping out your tree seedlings and really being a detriment to your plantation. So typically we think of deer and elk as being pests. Um, but it, some of our initial results kind of suggest otherwise, that the deer and elk could be benefiting plantations by really intensively foraging on the hardwoods rather than the, the planted seedlings. And then the effect that they have is really determined by the types of management that we apply.
2: So you mentioned songbirds as well. Now, what role do songbirds play in this? Is that a personal interest of yours, or are they really critical to this whole picture of biodiversity?
3: In terms of biodiversity, yeah. there There's quite a few studies done in the tropics specifically that, um, that have determined that uh, songbirds, by eating uh, these herbivorous insects, um, benefit Certain things like coffee plantations or cacao plantations, because they're removing a lot of those, um, they're removing a lot of those herbivore insects. And so, in the, in the Pacific Northwest, like I was saying, songbirds eat about equivalent their body mass each day, and, and arthropods, and so uh, you know insects, spiders, slugs, um, and so by removing those um, those arthropods, they could be benefiting plantation development. They could be benefiting tree growth. And it's a very, really complicated um, kind of food web interaction going on because it's not as simple as just songbird eats uh, this herbivore, but it could be songbird eats this spider that eats this herbivore that eats this plant that competes with this other plant. So it's really kind of complex, but um, the kind of our, um, our hi- hypothesis is that, is that songbirds actually uh, control, through eating these arthropods, control plant growth.
1: You mentioned these enclosures you're building for your research. Can you describe for us um, what it takes to make an enclosure, what they look like, how many of them are there?
3: Oh, yeah, I could speak to that because I... Um. And who built them. Oh. That is important. That's an important part. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I, I like to say that I, I got a master's in fence building. Um, <laughs> so whenever I started here, um, we basically, when I... Fell into this project, rather it fell on top of me. Ouch. Um, <laughs> I decided that we would build these enclosures, and, and at the time my advisor was wanting to build these huge, like hectare large enclosures, and I'm like, oh, we gotta pair it back a little bit. And so these things are actually um, 100 feet by 50 feet, and they're made with these really sturdy wooden H brace corners and so uh, steel. about
0: t- the size of a classroom?
3: Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, small classroom? A little, yeah, uh, about that, yeah. Okay. But maybe double in certain small classrooms. No lecture halls. But Right, uh, right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the classrooms are smaller in the English department. Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, these things are eight feet tall, and they're made out of steel, um, high-tensile wire. So you can imagine working in, I don't know, uh, for the viewers that aren't familiar with the Coast Range, it's a very rugged, nasty place. And there's, in clear cuts, you have a lot of logging slash, so, so typically we would have to haul all these materials, all these wood posts, steel steel T-posts, and wire, and chainsaws, auger, like power augers to dig holes, have to haul this all the way down these clear cuts to a plot where we was randomly selected. Because, you know, in order to be objective in science you need randomization so a lot of these things ended up in really precarious situations on the on the hillside yeah. and um so yeah cutting through the slash and digging holes and um they're pretty sturdy things though they stand up to deer and, and also um we on half of the half of each exclosure we put songbird netting up every year to, to exclude songbirds
0: and if you want to take a look at what some of these exclosures uh, and some of the equipment looks like, uh, you can check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu/inspiration, uh, where we have up um, some photos of uh, Thomas working on the working on the slash yards. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, and and um, you know, so the Pacific Northwest is pretty heavily managed. Uh, is it like? I mean, are there any areas that they do logging that's not? That's not just um, clear cutting a a huge patch of a huge patch of land and then replanting Doug fir.
3: Yeah. So in the Coast Range, it's dominated by um, industrial forests and and also a mix of non-private, or sorry, private, non-industrial, which still intensively managed. Um, and
0: this, this this gives the image of like if you look on the if you look look from look from above. Uh, on down to the, in the Pacific Northwest, you actually see kind of a checkered pattern.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You, it's very, um, these plantations are essentially on, uh, a fairly short rotation 40 to 50 years. But, um, a lot of the coast ranges manage fairly intensively. And then you have like the state forest lands, which, um, have a multi-use objective where, where they're not only trying to manage for timber production, but also for wildlife habitat recreation. And then you have your federal forest lands, um, And like the BLM, U.S. Forest Service, and they typically take more of a uh, light, uh, extensive management slash conservation management where it's more thinning based on um, trying to mitigate fire. And it's very it's not really revenue based versus industrial forest lands, but all of our forest lands are managed at some scale, um, you know, minus the wilderness areas.
2: So with those exclosures, are you going to be dismantling those as well, or are those going to be left up?
3: <laughs> well, ideally, uh, I built these things to last. We just um, actually, this is our sixth year in the, the experiment. and. I had uh, one of my technicians uh, go out and reinforce the exposure of summer. So I think the last another 10 years, I hope, you know, that would be That's
2: impressive. It'd be
3: awesome to to actually come back in 10 years, wherever I may be, hopefully not still here uh, <laughs> and go back and look in and see what it's like.
0: And so uh, you just uh, wa- uh, wax poetic a little bit about your future. But let's talk a little bit about your past, uh, because, I mean, you weren't. I, while you may have your degree in fence building you this is not this is not necessarily uh what you've been doing your whole life or has it
3: uh, yes at a, at a certain level um I I, yeah, I grew up on a on a horse farm and so you know I spent my my days uh shoveling manure and working on fences actually we built we put in a lot of fence lines and and so I find it so ironic that I would be uh going and getting this high education and phd and here i am building fences and you know picking up deer scat so i haven't at at some level you know go back to my roots because uh growing up on a horse horse farm you know we did a lot of rotational grazing and my parents really stressed the idea of these um these horses as herbivores and we need to really see you know Uh, graze differently to see you know to benefit the forage and there's certain ways you could graze and also have like high quality forage and um and so that really kind of sparked my interest my dad was a plant enthusiast and my mom was the animal lover so i you know i kind of feel like i got both sides uh, of that for my study because you know i'm focused on these deer and elk and also on on plant communities so Going from that, I basically uh, got interested in natural resources because um, seeing a lot of the the when the housing market was was high, we were, I was seeing a lot of of farmland being developed and a lot of forest land being developed. So it really kind of inspired me to get involved in natural resources and. So I thought I'd go into the policy field to get into policy and natural resources and I think I lasted like a semester at University of Missouri in in political science <laughs> and it's just like the political arena is not for me. I need to be in the, you know, in the field in natural resources. And, and so um University of Missouri got my environmental science degree and started to get really interested in this idea of um ecosystem services. What what do what do these um what do these ecological components mean for us and also how do we affect them? So, um, you know, people, a simple way of describing ecosystem services, anything like a forest providing clean water, something we derive benefit from. And so I really got interested in biodiversity conservation and and, um, trying to understand what role biodiversity plays in ecosystem services. And it's kind of where I got.
1: So growing up, on this horse farm you knew you wanted to do something that combined you know your interest in the environment and habitats um and policy wasn't the right choice what kind of what steered you then towards environmental science in college what what brought you to this field
3: yeah it's a good question i um i think you know at, when it when it all comes down to it, I am a conservationist and and I want to be real about that I can't act like I'm not biased because I do care about wildlife habitat and I'm a hunter you know I value wildlife species and i'm a you know wildlife enthusiast and so um, the policy side is obviously where it all everything all the decisions are made and um but really we have a lot of times um, science informs policy or or at least science should inform policy i don't know if it always works out that way but and in, in, in any case, we need high-quality um, science. And so in my undergrad, I got into environmental sciences and, and started to learn about um, research. And and then I basically got really enthusiastic, really passionate about, um, about science and kind of trying to pick apart nature and see how it works and see how it functions and just overall fascinated with the natural world. Like uh, growing up, for instance, we had a couple tornadoes come through and totally just knocked um I mean besides the the stables it destroyed some forest behind our behind our land and I was like oh it's a total loss but within years it just started to grow back and it was this jungle and so it just really kind of sparked my interest in in seeing how succession takes place and what succession means for for the natural world
2: not necessarily what you expect but new life is uh springs forth in a storm like that. Yeah. Interesting. So, um, after you completed your undergrad degree, did you know that you wanted to pursue higher education or like, what was that in between decision that led you here?
3: Yeah. I always really wanted to be involved in the sciences and I, it's, you know, in the back of my mind, um, getting a higher degree, you know, like a master's or PhD, I never thought I had to be doing a PhD when I was an undergrad. Um, but I wanted wanted to do some sort of grad level research, but I also wanted to get involved in, in management, go work, uh, you know, for some public agency, and it just so happened that they promised all of us natural resource uh future natural resource employees that we'd have all these jobs come come graduation. Like 2010 was when it's all gonna like all these people are gonna retire, and then the recession hit, and it was like, nope, never mind, they're keeping their jobs, <laughs> and, and so I was like, all right, time to go to grad school, <laughs> like. I thought I would put it off for a few years, but I decided to jump straight in from undergrad to grad school, and um, I actually um, was accepted by a, um, a USGS uh, researcher, uh, Joan Hagar, and we had all these different ideas of what kind of research we could do on Forest Service land and and how the Forest Service wants to start managing for um, this early successional habitat, and a lot of the public doesn't like that because it involves cutting trees, but um, I was taking this class and my, my advisor, uh, my, wasn't my advisor at the time, my, my professor was like, I have this great idea or we have this experiment for this, uh, this, this idea of, for this experiment where we're looking at how intensive force management affects songbirds. And I was like, he, he asked us what we would do. And I said, I would build fences <laughs> and, and he's like, well, it just so happens that we have that written up in the proposal. So, and uh, why don't you come along and join us on the collaborative. And so, yeah, I've been here ever since. That was in 2010.
0: And that happened, That that professor who uh, that that you took the class from was Matt Betts. Yes, Matt your Betts. Cur- your current, current advisor.
3: Current advisor for the PhD. Because I started off as a master's student just trying to do some simple research and and of course, like as a master's student, I feel like a lot of us want to just try to like answer all the problems in the world, like answer all the questions. And, and so I, I got a little ambitious with my questions and it led into the PhD. I
0: So, okay. So you, you started out with this, you, you came here to OSU um, and you were working with Joan Hagar, um, uh, working on, working on some of the seeds of these problems, uh, not to you know, pun intended. <laughs> um <laughs> And, uh, then you, uh, then, uh, Matt Betts kind of solidified, um, or helped you solidify what you want to do. So, um, how did you, how did you get funding to do all this research?
3: That's a good question. Cause, uh, whenever <laughs> I first started, I actually got accepted without full funding. It was essentially like, come along, you know, get involved. We'll, we'll, we'll find a project and we'll find funding. And then when I got involved with Matt Betts and, and our, uh, landscape ecology lab, it was essentially that they didn't have money for a grad student, but he was like, if you start building these fences, then we'll work on it. And so <laughs> for me, it was like, that was a challenge, you know, okay. And, and it ended up, um, I've been involved in all of the grant writing process and which is really valuable experience. And so um, with um, the help of Matt Betts and some other collaborators, we've actually been quite successful And uh, acquiring funding for this project over the past six years. And for this level of research, acquire, uh, that requires a lot of money. Yeah.
2: So does this funding come from the government or from private agencies?
3: Yeah. A big part of our funding is from the USDA. Um, and we we get this. Uh, it, it's a grant called the Agriculture uh, Food Resource Initiative. and And then the majority, so that's like, uh, it's not the majority, it's about half. And then the, uh, the rest of it comes from basically um, timber tax. So the forest industry has a self-imposed timber tax, and they use that tax to fund research to understand how uh, their management practices affect um, the natural world. And so uh, part, of their, part of their initiative is. And so I've been funded through the Oregon Forest Industries Council and, and through several grants that are in the College of Forestry that are from the forest industry dollars.
1: So you have uh, this background in both looking at industry and wildlife diversity. Um, What would you like to do with this? What are your hopes for post-PhD life? Yeah.
3: Again, good question (laughs) given the current uh, climate and (laughs) and natural resources. But ideally, I would like to work in um, essentially whenever we go through and do some sort of uh, restoration or conservation project we're trying to manage for – For wildlife habitat generally they're done on these small parcels and and what what information we really need to understand whether or not that management is actually working is really high quality well replicated uh, research so I kind of want to integrate this um, integrate what I've learned at OSU and and this idea of you know having really well replicated experiments and and apply that towards management for wildlife habitat and so um, if we're, you know, for instance, interested in maybe some random thing that I really care about is bison restoration on the plains, you know, how do we actually achieve that? We need to have a lot of collaboration involved with um, federal and private and also really well-replicated um, research so that we can actually glean information and use that f- for future management. So Nature Conservancy, uh, some federal federal employee would also be nice but <laughs> leaning towards nature conservancy
1: are there people in the industry that you think are doing that well right now that you look to as sort of models
3: yeah um in terms of management of land um so generally it's it depends on who you are because there are some um corporations that really have to um have to do what's in the best interest of their investors and so um, so a lot of forest industry they do well in, in actually managing for wildlife habitat and there's certain like um, the Oregon Forest Practices Act requires you know a, a couple of trees per acre be retained for um, for wildlife and and coarse wood in the streams you know riparian buffer zones and so um, but all that a lot of that's regulation based and so but then you get into some of these collaboratives. Um, And it's not just like the single person doing the single thing that's great, but it's usually these collaboratives um, because we have to look at uh, conservation at landscape scales. We have to understand, you know, these issues of fragmentation and and how wildlife move between habitat patches, and that generally requires a lot of different landholders. And so, um, you know, the the Forest Service is doing a decent job at managing for um, conservation, for not really having a heavy heavy impact, and then you also get these people like the Nature Conservancy that are involved and try to tie everybody together and say, okay, if if you want goods from this plot of land, you know, but you also want conservation from this plot of land, how do you make that work? Okay. But there are a lot of different small NGOs, non-governmental organizations that are really tie everybody together, and it's. it's but
2: really the nice. Nature Conservancy is gen- like the big one, the.
3: Yeah, they're I guess they're the biggest in terms of being, you know. They are, uh, remember, non for profit. Not technically industry, I think, but they are land. They buy land and sell okay. land, and involved right. in conservation. But, um, but yeah, the, the you know, collaboratives, like I said, it's not, not never just one individual mm-hmm. that does great. It's usually community.
0: Well, so hopefully, hopefully in the future, you'll be able to join one of those communities or build one of those communities that uh, you know, does great things for and does great things for our forests.
3: Yeah, ideally, <laughs> if I could write my own uh, job description, sure. Then, <laughs> but unfortunately, that's not the way it works. So,
0: well, bright things are in your future, hopefully.
3: Well, thank you, John. <laughs> Much appreciated.
0: So, um, oh, oh, we like to uh, end the show usually with uh, by asking you whether or not you have any advice um, uh, to give, either. Either it being to um, people who are going to go on in this field, or uh, people, future graduate students, or you know anyone you feel that needs advice, um, uh, we feel that this is a, this is your time to uh, to just kind of expound.
3: Yeah. Well, given the the current political climate, you know everything seems grim, but not really. Um, you know, my advice for everybody is to actually. Um, for people in general is just get outside you know and, and and show the government that you value nature go fishing go hunting go hiking you know go go skiing that still funds you know federal land management and and so go in, even if it's rainy outside i don't care just go out and enjoy nature and and that's really how we how we define a value for for ecosystems um for natural resource professionals, or at least aspiring natural resource professionals, I would just say that stick with it. You know, a lot of the temptation is that this field isn't well-paying enough and it requires, you know, too much work to actually get anywhere. But you really were really counting on you. It, it The whole Leopoldian, Thoreau, Muir, Roosevelt land ethics uh, come down to, to the people that really are, are in the trenches working hard and, and trying to figure out how to actually – uh, maintain a balance between um, humans and, and nature, and then for future grad students, uh, my advice would would essentially be like, um, don't don't uh, don't be discouraged. Like it's not the test isn't about grades. Life is a test, and there's always different um, challenges that you're faced. And so, you know, if you're wanting to go into grad school, don't don't get so obsessed with um, getting the perfect score. You know, really just put yourself out there, try hard, communicate. And, um, you know, if there's no funding there, just go there and start writing grants, you know, and get yourself funded. There's always a way. If you really care about getting into grad school, you can find a way.
1: And we've got one more tradition on inspiration dissemination. But before we do that, um, we'd like to note that today is Jean's last show. He <laughs> uh, is finishing yeah. his PhD and he is going on to a fancy postdoc. At least it sounds fancy to me. So, a huge congratulations to the founder of Inspiration Dissemination.
0: Well oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, this has been a. Uh, I mean, it's. I'm really glad that uh, I've been able to. Uh, we've been able to create a really good show together. Um, it's been five long years, but it's been a good. It's been a good show, and I'm glad that. Uh, I'm glad that actually um I'm having uh Thomas on uh because his work is uh really important everybody's work that's been on the show has been uh really important we're going to you know we're gonna be the we're gonna be the scientists in the new in the new generation so it's important to get our science known and out there and thank you uh Lillian and Mackenzie for picking up the torch and keeping the show going. Because uh, from from what I've been hearing, uh, you guys will do great things. So thank well, you. It's
2: great to be here, and thank you. <laughs> it is. Thank you, Gian. Um So I have a question for you, uh, Thomas. Or your song that you chose. Um, why did you choose this song? It's an atmosphere song.
3: Well, that's a good question. And I, first, I want to say it's honor, jean to to be your last <laughs> host. <laughs> um, I hope not the last for your life, because you do an awesome job at this. But um yeah, the atmosphere, it's uh the song is called Became and it's about this this man that wakes up to his friend missing and um he tracks, you know, he follows his tracks in the snow and then the tracks become wolf tracks and the idea behind the song is that we're all just beasts. We're all we're all wild animals and, and I think we really need to embrace that and understand that and quit trying to separate ourselves from nature. So that's why I like the song. And plus all the other songs on nature are really corny and cheesy. <laughs>
2: All right. Well, here it is. Became by Atmosphere.